We are on a Christmas road trip, looking at the city and the places of the Bible uh, as not merely settings for the story, but actually sort of like characters. I think that's helpful. When you read the Bible and you hear about a place, think of it more like a character with its own history and its own backstory that it sort of brings to the story. And today we're going to travel outside of Egypt, or outside of Israel, to the land of Egypt. Now, here uh, you can see how close Egypt and Israel are. They were part of this major travel route. Uh, there is Egypt. Uh, the main distinguisher of Egypt is the Nile River, which runs from south uh, to north. And at certain times of the year, the Nile floods and brings nutrients to the soil. And then people add canals to sort of spread that around. So take a look at this. Uh, I don't know how well you can see this, but this is the Nile River. And look how close the desert is. Okay, It's just green a little bit right around the river and then desert everywhere else. If you look at, this from a, if you look at Egypt from a satellite view, it's especially telling. Okay? Any doubt where the Nile River is? Okay? Everybody lives on the Nile in Egypt. Okay? Almost everybody lives on the Nile. You can see why. And so the Nile becomes this central place for these people that have lived there uh, since far before the Israelites. This is one of the longest continuously lived in places that we can find. Um, because the Nile was such a great source and because it was such an important trade route. And so in, in so much of what we have out of Egypt historically, it relates to the Nile because the Nile was so centered on paintings, pottery, everything. Now, the kingdom of, of Egypt is historically known for a few things. First of all, it's known for all of its different gods. Okay? In fact, uh, archaeologists have discovered Egypt has had as many as 2,000 gods. Okay? That's a lot of gods. Okay? And there would be major gods, and then there would be smaller gods. And during different epochs, different periods, different gods would, uh, would stand out. Um, a couple that you might know, the Amun-Ra was the chief god of the New Kingdom. A lot of people seem to know this character, Anubis, that has a jackal's head and is the, uh, the ruler, the god of the netherworld. But 2,000 gods, and a lot of them relate to the Nile. If you notice, a lot of these, they have heads of alligators or crocodiles. You know, they have, uh, they have heads of different birds that you would find along the Nile. And uh, the, so the Nile plays this huge role. During some eras, most of the time, the pharaoh or the ruler of Egypt was actually considered to be a god himself. He was ruled a theocratic or god-led state, but he was the god, or at least considered the embodiment of several of the gods. Okay, so it has this sort of pantheon, these lots of different gods all related to the Nile. Pharaoh would have been considered one of them. And when you go back and look at the, the ten plagues, for example, what's the first plague? The, the Nile to blood, okay? Most of the plagues actually relate to Moses critiquing these god of the Egyptians, okay? Because of their power, because of their history, they're also known for a lot of their writing. It's because of the Egyptians that we know a lot of early history. They wrote it in hieroglyphics most of the time and then eventually developed lettering, particularly on stone that has stood the test of time, um, some of them are the only surviving testimony we have of people, places, and events. This is called the Verneptus steel. Okay, it's, it's a steel 
or a, sometimes called the victory steel. So what they would do is they would write on these big uh, stone tablets and then they would make multiple of them to send them out. Here's all the great things that I did. Here's all the people that I conquered. This one was known for being part of King Merneptah, uh, like 1213 to 1203 BC, somewhere in there. Okay? It's important because it talks about a series of battles in Canaan, in Canaan territory, and it actually mentions Israel by name in the hieroglyphics. Okay? And so it, it's the earliest proof we have of this budding group of people called the Israelites. Okay, so they're known for their writing, they're known for their gods. The other thing, when you think of Egypt, what do you often think of? Pyramids and mummies, right? This is the other thing, their burial practices. Okay, their burial practices is very important to them. Thanks to stories about mummies and movies about mummies, uh, we think about this. Uh, in, in Egyptian view, your soul and your body were together. There was no distinction. Okay, and I think actually Jewish view is similar. Your body and your soul are connected. Okay, but in the Egyptian view, if your body fell apart, the belief was your soul would also fall apart and you would be lost for eternity. So they developed a lot of ways to preserve the body. First it was done to the pharaohs, and then it was sort of done widely among all the people. Okay? And it's pretty amazing how effective it was. This sarcophagus is King Tut that they're working on in the upper left. In the bottom right, it's really fascinating, this is Ramses II, okay? This is actually, historically, the person we think was either the pharaoh that forgot about Israel, okay, forgot about Joseph and put them under slavery, or may have been the very pharaoh that actually talked to Moses in the whole Exodus ordeal. It's right about that time period, okay? And there's a picture of him, okay? That's how good that burial practice is. We have a picture of the guy. That was opposite of Moses, potentially. Um, so, interesting, we, we, we sort of think about that. This is important biblically, too, because we know that Jacob and Joseph were both buried in this practice, okay? Because Joseph had lived there a lot of his life, okay? Their views of death become important also for the other thing we always think of, which is the pyramids and the monuments, okay? Because pyramids are actually just big burial chambers, Okay, what they would do is they'd build up this whole big thing, and then there'd be a very small burial chamber in the top where you would put the Pharaoh's body once you had mummified it. That way your soul, the Pharaoh's soul, could always find their body and always have rooting and always be safe. Um, and so, uh, so their views of death and the afterlife actually relate to these big things. Now, but here's the problem. How do you build these things? Okay, archaeologists historians still wonder this okay because these are built there's no cranes you understand that okay there's no bulldozers okay a lot of these are built before the wheel okay wheels are developed later than this how do they build these huge structures well there's one way you do it there's the power of the old, of of those ancient days slave labor okay slave labor that's how you build that stuff you got to have a lot of people a lot of slaves, a lot of oxen who can pull, who can basically be the machinery for all of this. Okay, what, what often happens is the Egyptians would win wars, they would take slaves from those wars, and that is how they would build things up. Now, our first trip to Egypt in the Bible is done before Joseph. It's actually Abraham. Abraham goes to Egypt first. And when Abraham goes, if you go back and read the story, 
it's because Abraham doesn't totally trust God. God gives Abraham this promised land, but you know what? It's rough. It's a lot of mountains. It's not really well together. But Abraham looks at the Nile and says, well, there's a lot of people there, and there's a lot of development there. And so he goes to the Nile. And uh, Pharaoh actually takes an interest in Abraham's wife. But being afraid of the, of the Pharaoh, he says that his wife is actually his sister. Some plagues start, and uh, Pharaoh finally confronts Abraham and finds out it's his wife and says, well, what are you doing to us? And from that point, Abraham is not welcome there. He ends up going back to his promised land. Okay? When we head back to Egypt again, it's because Joseph heads there. But Joseph doesn't choose to go there. If you remember the story, he's favored by his uh, father among his brothers. He's given some kind of a special cloak that makes him stand out, and his brothers get jealous. But rather than kill him, uh, one of his brothers convinces them to sell him into slavery. So Joseph ends up in Egypt, and it's there that he rises through the ranks, uh, starting out as a servant in somebody's house, ending up in jail for a while, but then ending up working for Pharaoh, running basically the entire of Egypt, because he predicts in one of Pharaoh's dreams that there's going to be seven good years, and then there's going to be seven lean years. And so even though the story looks bad, it looks like Joseph's been sold into slavery, this is terrible, but, but actually this was God's way of providing for his brothers, this growing family, because they would have died in the drought, but instead they end up in Egypt, and they stay there for a while. So even though Joseph says to his brothers, you meant this for harm, God meant this for good. Okay, so, this, the, so Egypt so far has been a symbol of running away from God's promises. Okay, it's been now a symbol of hope, but it doesn't stay that way. Because when the book of Exodus starts, it says there comes a Pharaoh who does not remember the story of Joseph. Okay, he doesn't remember what happened. And so all he sees is this growing number of people. Okay. Um, I always wondered, kind of like, how do you forget, forget the story of Joseph, right? Like, isn't that a big deal? But you got to understand, the, the Bible tells us, and I never really knew this, but actually from Joseph and the family going into the, to Egypt to Moses leading them out is about 430 years. 430 years. So it, it's not surprising that eventually they forget Joseph. In fact, it's pretty amazing that the Jewish people remember the Holy Land at all because there's nobody alive who lived there, okay? You wonder why they have trouble and why they sometimes say they want to go back to Egypt. Well, they don't know where they're going. They've never been there before. So as these people grow, Pharaoh ends up getting afraid of them. And to crush them, to keep them down, he, he tries to control their population, okay? He kills all the firstborn male children, but also... He puts them under the thumb of slavery. Now, Egypt is not a place of rescue. It's a place of bondage. One of those babies the Pharaoh tried to kill survived. His name was Charlton Heston, right? <laughs> no, his name was Moses. Moses. Moses is spared and ends up later in life on the direction of a burning bush coming back to lead his people out of Egypt and into freedom. This is somewhere around 1250 B.C. 1250 B.C. 
And do you remember the story? There are all those plagues. Remember I told you the plagues all relate to those gods of Egypt? Okay. The last one being the Passover, where, um, where an angel comes over, and if there's blood on the doorpost, he passes over that house. If not, he goes in and he kills the firstborn male child, just as the Egyptians had previously done to the people of Israel. And so God brings the people out into the wilderness for 40 years to prepare them to take the promised land. Okay? Uh, it takes him 40, uh, the saying goes, he takes them 40 days to get them out of Egypt and 40 years to get Egypt out of them. That it takes a while for them to learn how to be a people that aren't slaves. And this becomes the major moment, the defining moment of the Old Testament. Over and over again, as God gives them instruction, as God builds the temple, as God sets apart his people, he repeats the story. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. Therefore, Tabernacle. Okay? Because this becomes the symbol. Okay? If Egypt becomes the place of bondage, then going out of Egypt is a symbol of freedom, of leaving bondage. It's a symbol of God's care that we have a saving God. Now, if you follow along in your Old Testament, you find that their, their freedom is short-lived. Okay, there's a bunch of judges, they cause problems, a bunch of kings, and eventually there's this thing called the exile. And during the exile, the people of Israel, the Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is thrown down off the mountain, and um, they end up in exile, carried most of them away from their land and brought into slavery, and, or at least to live in other places that was not their home. And it's during this time that the prophets start to speak. And one of the things you find in the prophets is a lot of references to the Exodus. Well, why is that? Because from the prophets' perspective, you know where we're at when we're in exile? We're in Egypt again. We're in Egypt again. We're not free again. And so we're in bondage again. And so you know what we need? We need a new Exodus. Okay, we need a new Moses. We need new life. Now, they do get back, but even though they get back to their land, the Greeks and then the Romans are still in charge. Okay, so fast forward to the time of Jesus, and uh, the Romans, are, they're still in Egypt in a way. They're in their land, but they're not totally free. This is where our Christmas story comes in. One of those prophets that wrote this is, uh, is in the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 11, and he is writing about, Hosea is writing about this exile time. And here's what he says. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So Hosea looks back at this Exodus story and he says, you know, God is like a loving parent. Okay. And Israel is his son and he cared for him and he taught him how to walk. He led him out of the wilderness and rose him up. Okay. Um, but remember this passage in context. It's about exile. It's remembering how God saved us before and how God will save us again because that passage is going to be important uh, in this Christmas story. Okay, so we know the Christmas story. We know that Jesus, uh, Mary is found to be pregnant and uh, Joseph doesn't divorce her. He is told in a dream to go ahead and have her. He goes then to uh, have her in the city of Bethlehem. And there bumps up against 
one of the craziest characters in history. This is Herod, Herod the Great. Okay? Herod doesn't know anything about this little baby being born in Bethlehem until three wise men from the east come and try to find where this king is going to be born. Now, if you know anything about Herod, Herod is one of the most paranoid people in history. Okay? Killed several of his own children and uh, probably his wife. And he built fortresses all over, uh, all over Israel just in case he had to run somewhere. This is the most famous one called Masada. Okay, it was this little fortress on a hill. He built this, this palace, he built this fortress, because if anybody wanted to come and get him, he had a place to run every direction outside of Jerusalem. Okay, that's how paranoid this guy was. So when he finds out that there's a king to be born, he's not real happy about it. And he tells those wise men to come back and see him. Now, they're warned in a dream not to. You remember these guys, the three wise men? We don't know that there were three. Uh, they probably weren't kings. Uh, that's a later sort of historical addition in the Bible. They're just wise men. They're stargazers. But they are warned in a dream not to come back to Herod. And so they go another way around. So what does Herod do? He does exactly what the Pharaoh did. He goes after all the male children, two and under, in that region, trying to get to this baby, Jesus. Mary and Joseph are warned in a dream, however, and end up going to where? To Egypt. To Egypt. They go to Egypt to get away from Herod. Upon uh, the description that Matthew gives of the dream. And then Matthew says at the end of that passage, he said, and they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. So Matthew says, you know why? You know why they ran to Egypt? And you know why they came back? It was to fulfill this passage in Hosea. Okay? It was to fulfill this passage in Hosea where Hosea was saying that Israel was, was God's people and that he was bringing them out of slavery, now, he, now look what he's done. He, he has put Jesus in that place. Jesus as my son coming out of Egypt. So why Egypt? What does the character of this place Egypt give us in the story? Well, first of all, he's clearly making a connection that this reference to Israel being a son is just a little piece of the story, right? That this little baby actually is God's son. And then Matthew is also hitting on one of his big themes, one which I'm going to be dealing with in one of my Christmas Eve sermons. That Matthew, in Matthew, Jesus is the new Moses. Okay, that just like Moses was spared, Jesus was spared. Okay, and then if you follow the Moses story, he goes out of the river, goes across the Red Sea, and he goes into the wilderness for 40 years gives commandments on the mountains. What does Jesus do in Matthew? He's baptized. He goes in the wilderness for 40 days. And then he starts to give new commandments on what's called the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, there's a ton of connections between Jesus and Moses. But more than that, Jesus is also redoing Israel's story in Matthew. Okay, this is the most Jewish gospel that we have. And so Jesus is going back through Israel's story in a way. He's coming out of Egypt, except he's doing it without sin. Why? Because Matthew's using Egypt to also make sure we're understanding. 
that Egypt is a symbol of bondage and coming out of Egypt is a symbol of freedom and that is exactly what Jesus, this baby boy, is coming to do. That from the beginning of the story, we're meant to understand that freedom is coming because of this little baby. And the question is, will the bad people continue to rule, to kill, to control, or will there be freedom? Will the authority of Jerusalem and Rome kill Jesus, or will he actually survive? That's the, that's the whole crux of the story. But you know the end. And the end is this really ironic twist. And it says, yes, the Roman and Jewish authority will kill this baby. And that will be part of the story, but not the end of the story, because he will live, he will rise again. And so the freedom will actually come through the death of this baby. And isn't that amazing that Matthew is using Egypt, is using this little part of the story to make sure we're looking for these bigger connections that we're going to see as Jesus' life unfolds. And that's the hope for us today. That wherever you feel like you're in slavery, wherever you feel caught, wherever you feel stuck, the, 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 the baby of Christmas is leading you out. Jesus is coming to give you freedom where you feel stuck, where you can't seem to get out, where you're treading water. Hope is coming. Joy is coming. Peace is coming. So wherever you're in Egypt today, remember that Jesus is calling you out. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.